Hi, I'm Emery Parker. I wanted to let you know that there's some audio issues with this episode. It was caused by a glitch in recording that I didn't catch in time. I've done as much as I can to clean it up, but I wanted to go ahead and just apologize for it. I've taken care of the problem, and I don't think it will recur in the future. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Emery Parker. I'm Brooks Brunson. I'm Kelly Poe. We're here each week to discuss the forces shaping the Palmetto State and provide the context that gives it meaning. This is Understand South Carolina. It may sound outdated, but there are many groups in South Carolina and across the country that claim to be able to suppress or eradicate lesbian, gay, bisexual, and other queer identities. The practice, known as conversion therapy, is flourishing, despite many major medical groups condemning it and 14 states taking steps to outlaw it. We're here with reporter Michael Makrovich, who investigated the practice last year and found that one of the nation's most prominent ex-gay groups is based right here in South Carolina. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. So, Michael, tell us about this group, Hope for Wholeness, and what they do. Okay. So, lots to unpack here. Hope Mm -hmm. for Wholeness um, was originally founded in the late 1990s as a group called Truth Ministries. And... In the couple uh, decades since, the group has just expanded exponentially. Now, again, it's it's called Hope for Wholeness, whereas before it was just a singular group, a ministry. It has since become more of a, a national network, not only having established its own ministry here in South Carolina, but also seeking to connect people with uh, conversion therapy and ex-gay ministry services across the country. Most, if not all, medical, major medical associations um, condemn conversion therapy, saying it's pretty dangerous. Can you tell us why? You hit the nail right in the head, Kelly. I mean, every major medical and or you know psychological association on the books um, has come out against these practices. The damage that is you know, often experienced by individuals who undergo these practices is extremely well documented. When we talk about conversion therapy, what are we actually talking about? What do these groups say that they do? Conversion therapy is, it doesn't have its roots in any one methodology or, or practice. Um, when you say conversion therapy, a lot of people's minds go to these, you know, really, you know, frankly, barbaric methods of of treatment that date back decades and decades. You know, we're talking electroshock treatment. We're talking about inducing nausea associated with, you know, homoerotic imagery. Conversion therapy and, and ex-gay practices have largely moved away from these, you know, really, you know, I guess, insane practices that you hear about from decades past. It's a lot more subtle now. And I, I'd say the the format, if you will, um, is a lot more varied. What would be an example of how a conversion therapist would interact with their patient? Well, it's a good question because, you know, a lot of ex-gay groups like Hope for Wholeness, for instance, um, just to spell out a, a pretty clear example, you know, they're very, as a movement, they are incredibly self-aware and are you know, quite aware of the the rhetoric um, associated with, you know, what they do. Um, so for example, they'll say, oh, you know, we don't claim to be able to outright change, you know, a, a person from, from gay to straight, um, or, you know, completely change one's gender identity. The f- format, if you will, has become a lot more subtle now, you know, what they basically instruct, you know, how they, how they go about operating is they suppress 
And it, the goal is rather to disengage and to, you know, push the individual to disassociate with their queer identity rather than to break away or uh, eradicate it all together, if that makes sense. So that's really fascinating to me. It's it's like they're, they know, they're acknowledging that somebody can't necessarily choose their sexual preference, but they believe that it's almost just like a sin, kind of like, I guess they're seeing it as, we're going to teach you to not do this thing that you desire. We know you desire to do this, but we're like teaching you to keep it in. Well, I mean, I wonder if that probably gets us into why it's so universally condemned by, you know, major medical groups and, and psychological associations. It doesn't, the word you use there is, is you're training people to dissociate from their own identity, which doesn't right. sound very health, healthy, does it? Yeah, Brooks, I, I think to, you know, to the point that you and Emery were making, you know, as far as moving away from this more, you know, implicit idea of quote unquote therapy and working to altogether, you know, eradicate um, one's queer sexual orientation or, or gender identity um, it is becoming, moving away uh, from the mainstream and becoming, you know, a lot harder to, to come by as far as these organizations are concerned. Um, and I, I think a good way to illustrate this, there's this group that uh, has been, you know, kind of coming up through the ranks and is, is relatively new. They're based out of Florida um, that I've been keeping tabs on. Uh, they're called Fearless Identity. And it was it was founded by an individual uh, who was featured in our story, um, though he wasn't quoted, uh, Luis Javier uh, Ruiz. And Luis Javier Ruiz, Ruiz, excuse me, did previously identify as a gay man and was in the Pulse nightclub the night of the mass shooting. Um, so, of course, he he survived the shooting and... Of course, you know came, it goes without saying. Came away just utterly traumatized. His his response, though, to you know the, the the trauma that he sustained in this this horrific attack was to completely distance himself from his gay identity. The way that he came to frame the attack at the nightclub that evening was, you know, it was it was this quote unquote lifestyle, you know, the the gay lifestyle that had led him to be in the pathway of the attack that. night. Um, I digress. And his his group, Fearless Identity here, um, something that uh, members of this group love to throw around is it's not gay to straight, it's lost to saved. And I, I think in, in that mantra, if you will, um, it's, it's very illustrative of how the movement as a whole has kind of moved away from this. Uh, we're not changing you from, you know, X to Y. We're just kind of reframing your thinking. Just to make sure I understand this. He found this group, Fearless. What was it called? Uh, he's a founder of the group, Fearless Identity. And that came after the Pulse shooting, correct? Correct. That can't be super common, though, that we see like, I mean, that's that, that seems like the outlier, right? I mean. It's definitely a pretty extreme yeah. of, of, of circumstances here, no doubt. Um, but I guess he kind of then jumped onto a, a movement that was already going on. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So I'm curious, we've talked sort of like high level about what these groups do, but what does it look like on an individual level? Like what is someone who goes through conversion therapy? Like what is their day like in that therapy? You know, we've, we've come to refer to these practices, you know, holistically as quote unquote conversion therapy. Um, but by and large, and this was especially the case in, 
um, taught to hate myself in the project that Mary Catherine Wildeman and I reported was that oftentimes these are practices that are not even always being offered by licensed professionals. A lot of the times you'll have uh, faith leaders um, who are just offering one-on-one counseling to parishioners who come to them and say, hey, this is something that I am struggling with. What can you do to help me? And then that response is, that is wrong. That is not acceptable. You know, that is deviant in the eyes of God and, and our faith. You know, here's what we're going to do about it. You know, I want to make clear just because, you know, you're, you're not receiving uh, this, this quote unquote therapy from a, a licensed counseling professional doesn't make, you know, the, the messaging that is being internalized any less damaging or, or maybe, harmful. Maybe more so because they're not licensed and because they are, if they're part of the clergy, it's somebody you trust and, you know, right? Right. I mean, it's, you know, for, for a lot of people, especially, you know, the, the individuals that are part of our story, you know, at, at the point points in their lives where they were, you know, seeking out these practices and, and seeking out their ministries, you know, they held very close to them their faith. And it, it was a it was a super integral part of their their personal identity. And so imagine for a moment, you know, at, at least in, in your own mind's eye, you have this close relationship with with God or a higher power or or whatever. And then you have, you know, someone uh, we'll say a minister for conversation's sake, who uh, you're you're told to believe, you know, in, in your upbringing is uh, is a vehicle of God's word, and you know that vehicle is you know saying God doesn't accept you. One thing that I found really fascinating about your story is that it really revealed that this is a practice that's thriving in South Carolina. And I think that, you know, I'm from here. I've lived here most of my life. And up until you uh, first told me that you were reporting, working on the story, I had no idea this was a com- this was at all common here or like something that still really existed in the United States at all. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about how these groups are still operating kind of largely under the radar? And I mean, I mean, the reader response from this, too. I mean, everybody was so shocked. They were like, what the heck is this? Like, I, I don't think that the general population in South Carolina outside of those who have read your story are aware that this is happening. Can you talk a little bit about how um, organizations are able to kind of do this under the radar? And For sure. I think, I think so. It's a, it's a question that, that yields a response that is very layered and, and very complicated. But um, what I will say, and what I think a lot of these groups do really well is they've become kind of masters of their own marketing and, and their own messaging um, as I mentioned earlier, they've become incredibly self-aware. They know what major medical groups are saying about what they do. They know what science says about the harm that is often you know, associated with these practices. And so what they do is they, they essentially adopted their own lexicon. Um, so you won't find a lot of these groups using terms like conversion therapy or reparative therapy. They'll use terms like um, you know, achieve sexual wholeness or allow us to help you break away from your your sexual sin. And and so what it is is it's it's conversion therapy in in gift wrap, really. <laughs> it's so weird that they're self-aware enough to know that this is going to be perceived as wrong or false, but they still believe in it. That's that's fascinating to me. It's like we know that 
science says this isn't helpful or useful. So we're going to try to hide that we're doing it, but we're still going to do it. I mean, that's... It is really hard to wrap your mind around because you have groups like Hope for Wholeness. When we were going back and forth with Hope for Wholeness, um, you know, as we were reporting this project um, and they were determining whether they were going to be part of it or not, they said to us time and time again, we are not conversion therapy. We do not offer, you know, those those kinds of practices here. You know, we are a faith-based ministry. Hard word to say. Faith-based. <laughs> faith-based ministry. What do they do as a faith-based ministry? What is the ministry they claim to provide? I, I think what it boils down to is they're, they're repackaging what they're offering. So ostensibly, it is absolutely conversion therapy. It is absolutely an ex-gay ministry. Their ultimate goal is you know, whether they acknowledge it or not, is to lead a person away uh, from a queer-centered identity. Um, And so even though you don't have hope for wholeness, you know, hooking up their clients to an electro machine or or what have you, um, at the end of the day, they are, you know, teaching the people who who come to them uh, seeking guidance and, and, and reassurance that this you know, super central part of, of who they are is not acceptable. So that was something I found really interesting in your story. I think um, I had sort of like seen conversion therapy in like the movies or heard horror stories about it. Again, I didn't really realize that it was like still common among certain circles here. But I think I, in my mind, before I read your story, conversion therapy was like something that parents sent their children to when they found them like kissing a boy or something and they were forced into it and it was this big traumatic thing for children and I'm sure it would be if that was how they experienced it but I found it so interesting that I think everyone that you spoke to on at least on some level chose to enter this practice as an adult and even if not everyone does that a lot of people do and I'm just what 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 are those people feeling what are they thinking you know I'm really glad you brought that up because as a little bit of background here to kind of set this up there were a lot of people, a number of people that we talked to who had went through with these practices and had participated in conversion therapy or ex-gay ministry, you know, one way or the other. Um, and all of them found it in, you know, a, a variety of ways or came across it in a, a number of different ways. But I, I believe you're right, Kelly, the, the people who, who made it into the story um, and who the, the story kind of revolved around sought conversion therapy of their own volition. and. All of them uh, came from, you know, evangelical backgrounds and from from households, you know, that were, you know, faith strongholds where they they felt a lot of pressure both internally and externally from parents, from clergy, uh, from from their church, you know, from their 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 peer groups that are associated with these uh, you know, respective establishments that that they needed to change and that their their happiness. And, you know, them being able to live a, a, a good and, and fulfilling life was contingent upon them doing so. Yeah, and just to, just to um, I guess, maybe provide some stats here, uh, the most recent estimate that we have, or the best estimate that we have, is that about 700,000 LGBT individuals in the U.S. Right. Have, have received this at some point in their life. Right. And about 350,000 of them received it as adolescents. So yeah, that that imply or that means that a lot of people are out there receiving this as adults, presumably under uh, under their own volition, as as you said. Absolutely, and you know, I I know exactly the uh, 
study that, that you're referring to. And frankly, and I think, you know, even the, the researchers, you know, who, who provided us with these figures, you know, will, will tell you that I, I think, frankly, that that's an underestimate. Right. Um, I, I, I think that we don't know about a, a lot of the practices that are out there. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever right. um, that that figure, you know, that, that we just referenced. Right, right. It's because like um, Brooks was mentioning earlier, how it kind of operates under the radar. And it's, um, it makes a lot of sense if, if you, I mean, because this is mostly a faith-based thing, right? It's just not operating under the same kind of oversight that you might have for a, like a medical practice. And as a result too, there's just not, there's not a lot that is known about it, right? A lot of it is happening, you know, where 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 the normal like eyes of science are aren't able to look and, and to research what's what's going on, you know. One hundred percent, and you know that that also carries with it that you know a, a lot of these individuals who are you know having to go through these experiences, it's also it's extremely plausible that they're not even fully aware that the experience that they are having would otherwise be referred to as as conversion therapy of, of some sort. So just to kind of illustrate that a little bit. So I myself, uh, I, I personally identify as gay and I grew up in thoroughly red state. Um, I, I grew up in Indiana in a, a, a pretty religious setting. And as I was attend growing up and attending catechism school, and so I, I went to public school, but, you know, I would attend, you know, like catechism school once a week or, or something like that. You know, we have, we would have literature that we would have to familiarize ourselves with that basically, you know, kind of ticked off these various sins, you know, that, that you would confess to in a, in a one-on-one setting with the priest. And I very clearly remember the term, quote unquote, homosexual acts, you know, being on this list. While I, I would definitely stop shy of you know saying this would compare to any like real direct form of of conversion therapy, so to speak. But you know that was definitely you know messaging that I internalized as as a youth um, that had a very significant um, you know adverse impact on how I saw myself and and my place in the world. And I think a lot can be said for other queer youth. You know, conservative religious settings um, who are having parallel experiences. Well, I think that touches on the sort of why this all matters, right? Just about every major me- medical group um, out there has condemned ex gay therapies, um, have said they're dangerous. What kind of damage does this do? Uh, dangerous, and I'd, I'd say, and you know, a lot of these these medical groups would would echo me in this sentiment, but also deadly, frankly. How I came to uh, begin reporting this story from the get-go. Early on in my reporting, I was in touch with uh, a national advocate of sorts who was part of a, a nonprofit group that you know travels from legislature to, to legislature, states that are four states that are considering various forms of protections you know, against conversion therapy and you know, ex-gay. Which to be clear, South Carolina does not have any protection. It does not. Correct. Yeah. And so we were just talking about, you know, kind of generally speaking um, about his experience, you know, traveling and, you know, offering testimony. He himself is a, a conversion therapy survivor. Uh, his name is Matthew Shirka. He was a, just a wonderful resource for us throughout, throughout our reporting. 
I want to get into maybe some some more of these anecdotes of of the people involved in your story. But I think um, before we we move on in preparing for this episode, I, I wanted to just kind of try to figure out like what what is the universe of, of research out there. I found, as I said earlier, there, there's not a whole lot, but one of the best set or studies I found is from actually from 2002. So it's a bit old. It only has two, 200 individuals or 200, 202 individuals. So it's not very big. Uh, but what this study found is that uh, of the 202 individuals who they surveyed, 88% failed to achieve a sustained change in their sexual behavior. Uh, 12% reported either losing all sexual drive or just becoming celibate. Uh, and only 3% reported changing their orientation. Mm-hmm. Now, now that means 3% of, of 202 is eight. Of those eight, seven were ex-gay counselors or group leaders. So uh, the, the other thing that this study found is of the people that they surveyed, most reported, most reported feeling harmed by the experience. They reported depression, suicidal ideation and attempts, uh, social isolation, and poor self-esteem. But I, I do want to get into one of one of the other aspects of this is really fascinating is that some of now the most vocal opponents of conversion therapy are people that used to do it. So can yeah. you, can you I- explain that transition a little bit? It's really interesting because while I, I didn't have a, a ton of experience, uh, you know, talking to individuals who were sort of at the flip side, if you will, you know, people who are actually offering these practices. Right. The the one person that that does come to mind, though, there, there's a young woman we talked to who uh, was a, a graduate student at Bob Jones University. Uh, now, for listeners who you know may not be all that familiar with Bob Jones, uh, Bob Jones is a conservative, you know, political stronghold in in, in South Carolina, and and yields. A lot of influence, um, you know, both in evangelical circles and in, in political ones here in, in South Carolina. And so it, it goes without saying that at this institution, they have on the books extremely, and, and this is an understatement, extremely stringent, you know, social codes. You know, it, it goes as, as far as to say, not only can you, uh, you know, not participate in sexual behavior with you know a member of the same sex but even if you know someone on campus uh, particularly an administrator or an instructor uh, perceives you as being LGBTQ you're at risk for expulsion and just because you act gay I mean, if if they perceive you as gay and they wow. they they send you through the hoops and you know you, you don't come out on the other end satisfactorily you know i, I guess you could say then you stand the risk of, of being expelled. And that was the case with uh, one of the former students who we spoke with. Um, now, it's interesting because this former student, at the, it's an interesting case because she actually, she presently identifies as, as a lesbian. Uh, she's a, a cis woman and identifies as a lesbian. Um, but at the time she was a student at Bob Jones, she was uh, not out. But it's it's interesting because she served as sort of like this this pure mentor slash counselor, you know, in her capacity as a, a graduate student on campus, um, and so she would, you know, serve as a, a mentor for for younger students in this this little cohort. And so what would happen is she would 
counsel students who, who came to her with an array of whatever issues. Um, among them, though, um, were students who were coming to her or students who were sent to her by staff at Bob Jones uh, who were perceived as being LGBTQ. And so it, it was a really interesting perspective, you know, to be able to talk to someone who actually did ostensibly offer, you know, some form of conversion therapy, however subtle it, it was or wasn't, and, uh, you know, sort of came out on the other end. Well, the guy that I had in mind is um, McCray Game. Is, is that his name? The yes. founder founder of, of Hope for Wholeness, right? So he's now, or it, it wasn't called Hope for Wholeness when he founded it, right? That was... Truth Ministries. Truth right, Ministries, right. right. Um, but now he's he's a very outspoken, I guess, opponent of of conversion therapy, right? It's kind of, it, it straddles kind of an interesting line here. Um, so, you know, just to, to set this up again, McCray Game was the original founder yeah. of Truth Ministries, uh, which is now Hope for Wholeness. Um, and up until very recently, he stepped down as the as the director of the group um, for reasons that have not been made public. We we still don't know why he is no longer at the helm of Hope for Wholeness. And we reached out to McCray Game numerous times throughout our reporting to you know kind of get a better handle on this and as to the, the inner workings of Hope for Wholeness, but. McCray Game's story um, is such that he lived as as a as a gay man, as he says, for years and years, until he, again, as he says, you know, found Christ. And so now, as you have uh, a man who formerly identified as gay, who is married to a woman, and has children, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it, and so it's it's this pretty remarkable dynamic, but. What kind of makes this even more interesting now is, you know, he's no longer associated with the group um, and he's even taken steps to distance himself uh, from the group and its teachings. And when you guys were reporting, he would not respond to comment. Am I correct? Correct. And then he reached out to us after the after the project published and was like, I, I need to make myself clear on this. And he said, you know, you're. Your reporting was was thorough, it was accurate, and it was, quote, well-founded. Yeah, I see the quote that he sent right here. Um, I've come to realize that ex-gay ministry is not the best choice for most. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's pretty crazy that he, so long of you guys trying to contact him and him not saying anything and his departure from the organization without planning. And then after your story, he finally comes out and just says straight up. This is not the best choice. Yeah, it it, it surprised us, too. Um, I was... Flabbergasted, like to be two honest. Two days after it published, I remember yeah, that day. It was, it was a. It's a really remarkable sentiment, no doubt. So yeah, he responded and said he finally came out to say that this was not the best choice for most. What other kind of responses did you get from people that read the story? The feedback uh, that we received um, after the story published was was really really something. We heard from a number of people. You know, people who you know even outside of the, the deep south or outside of South Carolina, you know, who were writing to us saying, this was my experience. This was my life. And, you know, now I have language and, and words to, to put toward my experience. And so to, you know, be able to, you know, shed light on these practices and, you know, not just acknowledge their existence, but to, you know, help people to better understand the mechanics, I guess, of, of what exactly it is we're looking at here, um, I, I think is really meaningful. 
And I, I, I think people largely, uh, you know, generally speaking, were really receptive to that. I just have one more question, which is that, you know, everything we've talked about, I mean, it sounds pretty horrific. And I could see how a lot of these individuals who go through this could really lose their faith at the end. Is that something that you saw? It's another question that I, I think is, is a complicated one. The people who were a part of this story and their respective relationships with their own faiths is, is really something. And it was really interesting to, to, to be able to, to explore that in our story. Um, so, for instance, you have Mitch Reed and, and Josh Crocker, you know, two, two cis uh, gay identifying men who both had you know, ex- extremely <laughs> strong uh, religious ties, both before and during, you know, as they were seeking out, you know, ex-gay ministries and, and conversion therapy practices. Uh, I, I still keep in touch with, with, with both of these men. And, uh, you know, Josh Crocker, we've had some interesting conversations about, you know, the, the role that faith plays in, in his life. But is he still religious today? Yes. Yes, he is. You know, I, I think it's, I, I don't want to speak for him at all, but, you know, my, my perception, you know, what, I, what I've seen from the outside is, you know, he's, he's kind of on this journey, you know, you know, still working to reconcile his faith with his, his, his sexual identity. And, you know, he's, he's really taken to working to, you know, empower other Christians and, you know, other, you know, people of, of faith as to how they, 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 they don't have to choose. They don't have to choose to be queer or to be Christian or to be queer and spiritual or, you know, what have you. You, know, you can, as, as far as he says, you, you can have the best both. of both worlds, so to speak. Yeah, and I guess that's, you know, kind of one of the maybe the central problems with this practice in general. It's that you can't be both of the things you identify as. You know, you identify as a Christian, you identify as a gay man, and this practice is telling you you can't do two of the things that you know to be true of yourself. Absolutely. And, um, I think that's powerful that some of your sources have are doing work to help kind of um, erase that stigma. Yeah, and Mitch Reed, who I, I mentioned, you know, in addition to, to Josh Crocker here, Mitch Reed was in and out of various conversion therapy practices and ex-gay ministries for the better part of three decades, which is just pretty unfathomable. And in, in 2015, um, sometime after he came out of you know, ex-gay ministry for, for the last time, he joined an LGBTQ affirming church where he lives in Greenville, which, which I think is, is, is really telling. You know, he, he found that environment, um, that, that spiritual environment that, that he was looking for that embraced him wholeheartedly. But was that uh, a difficult process? Was that a, a hard journey? He told me it was. Really? I think that's probably a pretty good place to leave it. Yeah. Um, Brooks, do you understand South Carolina better? Yeah, I do. Um, I think that one of the most fascinating parts of this is that conversion therapy is not just um, electric shock therapy or something, right? It's these kind of little, I, you know, I really appreciated you, uh, Mike, sharing that story about his upbringing and even just these small little things that people get told that, um, you know, as the project's called taught to hate myself about how you can't be both religious and homosexual, you know, 
that in itself might not be quite conversion therapy, but it's all a part of the culture around it. And I think that um, the more that we understand that and how, how frequent and how often that's going on in South Carolina, the better we can understand uh, the struggles of these individuals. And Absolutely. And Marie, do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? Yeah, I think I do. Uh, I thought what, what I, what I really took away from the story is how, you know, the society seems sometimes to move really fast and, and we sometimes think that, oh, we're past certain things, but these, these practices, they, they kind of have a way of, of clinging, clinging onto life and, and just sort of taking on a life of their own that is, is going on in the shadows sometimes that you don't even know about. Yeah, it's like they found their way to like secretly still survive today yeah. by also like dying. Well, and like we discussed, I mean, you know, I, I like that, that metaphor you used, Emery, you know, these, these practices clinging to life. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's particularly the case because these these practices and their their respective methodologies are not remaining stagnant. They are ever changing. Evolving with the times. Kelly, do you understand South Carolina better? I do, but it's pretty sad. Yeah. I understand it better for the worse. A devastating understanding. <laughs> A devastating understanding of South Carolina. <laughs> sometimes sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes it'd be like really that. Really do. Really do. Mike, how can people follow you online? So on Twitter, uh, you can feel free to follow me at MJ McCrovich. Uh, listeners, sound it out. Just kidding. <laughs> or, or look, in, look, in, look in the show notes. Yeah. You can. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you guys want me to spell it out? Or yeah, you just spell it out. We can spell it out. Okay, I'll go ahead and spell it out for you guys. It's not quite phonetic. Uh, it's M J M A J C H R O W. I-C-Z. And listeners, if you had a hard time spelling that, we understand. I've worked with Mike for three years, and I still don't know. And I have to write his name out a lot for my job, and I still don't spell it. Just go easy on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so read the show notes. You'll find him the there. Show notes. <laughs> Thanks so much, you guys, for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later. Peace.